I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Uh, I have been looking forward to this Sunday, uh, this service, may I, uh, let me change that, because I didn't know what Sunday it was going to be, but for this service, since March 13th, when we sent out uh, the email to the church family that we were going to take a couple weeks off. It's, this is now week 14, uh, and we realize that it's not over, and that um, the, uh, uh, there, there is still uh, fear out there, but it is, uh, it is good to be together. And I've been thinking about what I wanted to say uh, for some time, um, but with all that's going on in our world, um, there, there is literally uh, almost unlimited things to talk about. Um, as the cultural issues have shifted from COVID-19 to racial injustice, as the confusion uh, in our society between is this about public health or economic recovery, as uh, the legislative battle between our governor and the senators and um, state representatives continue to escalate, what do you talk about? There's so much we could talk about. And I realized, as I was thinking about it, that the need of the hour, the need of any hour, is not just to talk about that which is current, but to talk about that which is permanent. Not just to talk about the things that are earthly, but those things that are heavenly. Not just to speak about something which is fleeting, but that which is eternal. The, the world that our Savior Jesus entered into 2,000 years was something like this. It was an unjust society where people could be murdered for saying the wrong thing. It was a society that was on edge. It was tense, and it was often around an ethnic divide. There was a Roman occupation. They were the elites of the society. For over a hundred years, so for generations, there had been this tension. And you had groups like the Zealots and the Sicarii who were willing to do whatever it took to create discord so that, the, that uh, there could be an overthrow of the establishment. There were opportunistic compromisers like tax collectors in the society that Jesus came to. There were hypocritical, self-righteous, religious authorities who could justify anything in the name of God. In that day, there were good, bad guys and bad, good guys. Cornelius was a good, bad guy. He was a centurion, Roman centurion, we read about in Luke chapter 7, who was, it was said about him that he loved the nation. And he had built a synagogue. I'm sorry, that was not Cornelius. Cornelius was in Acts. This was another Roman centurion in Luke chapter 7. The bad, good guys were the high priests, the religious authorities who, were willing, uh, who willingly went against Jesus to crucify him just to protect their power structure. In the days that Jesus came, there were insiders, there were outsiders. There were elites, and there were marginalized people. There was... Tolerance, the Pax Romana of the day, mixed with the intolerance of you just can't push it too far. There was the privileged class and the oppressed class. 
Does that sound at all familiar to you? That sounds an awful lot like what we hear about our own country. And it is into this world, that world that I just described, filled with complexity and pain and frustration and aspirations that Jesus entered with a message. And we read it in Mark chapter 1 and verses 14 and 15. And he says this, Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I want us to look in our brief time, and it will be brief, at three truths. The first truth is this. Jesus offers us something better. In a world that is always making promises that never actually are fulfilled. Uh, they, they, a world that is making promises that don't satisfy. Jesus calls us to an eternal, calls us to an alternative. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. The word there is that means that it is near. And the reason it was near is because the king who is inaugurating that kingdom, though unrecognized, was Jesus. And he had come to inaugurate this kingdom of God in this world. Now his relative, John the baptizer, was also preaching this message. And he, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, John the baptizer says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now he doesn't say anything about believe in the gospel. John doesn't because Jesus had more good news than John did. So we ask, what is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God that Jesus was saying is at hand? I believe personally that the kingdom of God is the overarching, is the, the all-encompassing theme or storyline of the Bible. It is the most significant truth in, in the story of God and man. And it is, and that is, that is significant when I say that, because what I mean is that other massive truths like redemption and heaven and forgiveness only find their true meaning, their biblical meaning, as they are understood in the relation to the kingdom of God. It is the overarching story from Genesis to Revelation. Matt Chandler says that the kingdom of God ought to be understood in three Ds. Not in three dimensions, but using three Ds. The first is, it refers to dwelling. It is, the, it is that God dwells with us. Emmanuel, God with us. That is the story of God's kingdom from Genesis all the way to Revelation. God with us from the garden where, where the Lord walked with our first parents, Adam and Eve. And then they fell, but God was with the people in, uh, in the Exodus. And he was with the people in the tabernacle. He was dwelling among them. And then in Christ, he is with us. He came and tabernacled among us. And then in eternity, we see that God will be our God and we shall be his people. This is the first D, Chandler says, that the, describes the kingdom of God. The second D is dominion. 
that God has dominion over everything that he's created, but we, his people, serve with him as vice regents in exercising dominion over the earth. And that means that we are to be people that bring chaos, I mean bring order to chaos. We're going to sing a song at the end that mentions just that. We are bringing order to chaos. We are to be people on behalf of God exercising dominion that bring light into darkness. We are to be people that on behalf of God are to bring justice to injustice. We are to exercise dominion over this uh, world in God's name as his vice regents. And the third D that Chandler says is that it is dynasty. Not only dwelling, not only dominion, but it is dynasty. It is that this kingdom has no end. A dynasty, we talk about the Chicago Bulls, had a dynasty because they three-peated. Well, I'm telling you, the kingdom of God doesn't three-peat. It goes on forever. It never loses a game. It continues for, forever and ever. It is eternal. Thus, just like the, well, not just like, much greater than, but take the Bulls. No one compared to the Bulls. Back in those days, everyone else looked pathetic compared to them. In comparison to the kingdom of God and the dynasty of the kingdom of God, everything else that wants to be even in competition looks irrelevant compared to the kingdom of God. Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, what is this kingdom involved? Well, Paul... And if you read through the New Testament, the Gospels, Matthew chapter 13, all the parables of the kingdom, but you look throughout the New Testament and you're going to see this kingdom language everywhere. Romans chapter 14, verse 17, Paul says this. He says, the kingdom of God is not about eating or drinking. They're having a, an argument about, can we do, can we eat this meat which has been sacrificed to idols? Can we drink this thing? What is, what is it that we have to do? And Paul says, that's not what the kingdom of God is about. The kingdom of God is about righteousness, about peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness. Christ's righteousness imputed to us, but us living out righteous lives in the world on his behalf. Peace. That we receive peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, having put our faith in him, and yet we become agents of peace in this world. And joy. That we bear the fruit of joy in our lives in the hardest of times because we are so connected with the indwelling, there's that word dwelling, presence of the Holy Spirit. And we are the people that recognize that in this world, there is only one group of people that have the presence of God within them, and that is the church. And we live that out as the kingdom of God wherever we're at. Everything else is puny in its relevance compared to it. And over against all of this that the world entices us with, Jesus offers us something better. And it's an invitation to live under his rule, to live under his lordship, to live under his authority. And his commands are not burdensome, but they are life. And in response to this invitation, Jesus calls us, Jesus establishes two commands. 
which is my second and third point. The second one is this. The first command that Jesus makes is that we must change our minds. We have to change our minds. The biblical word is to repent. We have to repent. Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. The word, sometimes, oftentimes people think of repentance as meaning, man, you just got to cut it out. You got to just stop that. That's, a, that's, that's destroying you. It's embarrassing. You got to just cut it out. You got to clean your act up. And that leaves people dead in their sins and leaves people stuck in frustration. Because repentance at its core is to change your mind about what you love. What is most valuable to you. And when Jesus says the kingdom of God is near, repent, what he's saying is take a look at it, compare it to everything else, and you need to change your mind about what you're chasing after. If anyone is ever going to enter in and to enjoy the fruits of the kingdom of God, their thinking has to change. Now I say that because oftentimes when we invite people to a relationship with God, we ask them to pray a prayer or to invite Jesus into their hearts. And I understand with the good intentions behind it, but the oversimplification of those phrases is that you can get people to do that without them changing their minds. I mean, a deep-seated metanoeo, a repentance. And Jesus is inviting us to take a long, hard look at what this world is offering. Evaluate its satisfactions. Evaluate its promises. Evaluate his hopes and compare them to the kingdom of God and say which is greater. Now sometimes the process of repentance is difficult because sin has so entangled us and it has twisted its way into our thinking. And we ask, where do we start? in this process of repentance. We're commanded to repent. I want to tell you yesterday, my daughter, Savannah, asked me, said, Dad, can we pull the grass out of the garden? She, about four weeks ago, planted three watermelon bushes. In the last few weeks, those watermelon bushes have invited some friends over called weeds. And they invited a lot of friends. And we walked up to the garden, which is on the side of our house that we don't go to very often, and I was like, my goodness. So Savannah and I sat down. We don't have a big garden, by the way. It's, it's about the size of this podium. Uh, we, we sat down on the edge of this, and we started talking about gardening. And I said, Savannah, where do you start? This is a mess. I don't know. I can't even see the watermelon plants. And I said, just start pulling weeds. Just start pulling. And what Savannah and I recognize is that once you start pulling weeds, the way forward becomes a little bit more clear. Well, that's a lot like repentance. 
Sometimes sin has gotten so entangled, got us so entangled and got our minds so twisted that we're looking like, how do I get out of that mess? And what we ought to say is, you don't got to figure out how to get out of all the mess. Just start somewhere. And you repent of that thing that you know of. And God's going to show you what's next. Savannah and I were also sitting there, and she was just grabbing the tops and popping them off. I said, no, sweetheart, you got to go down to the very bottom, and you got to grab it, and you got to start wiggling there. Because what you want to get, you want to get the roots of those weeds. Because if you don't get the roots of the weeds, what happens? They're coming back. And that's a lot like repentance. That's a lot like how we change our mind. A lot of times we look at the sin in our life and we just say, oh, this is, this is bad, i got to get rid of it, so I'm just going to... And what we do is we don't repent of the root of our sin, we, re, we repent of what is seen. It's just the top layer of it, but we don't actually root it out, and so it comes back because we don't know what the source, the idol that was the, causing that sin in the first place. And so if we're going to be people that repent and change our minds, we got to be diligent at weeding the garden of our hearts. The third thing Jesus says, and I believe that this is what gives us the grace to repent. Jesus says, and he commands this, we must believe in the goodness of the message that he's offered. The second command is that we must believe the gospel. We must believe the gospel. The gospel, as you know, means good news. And we have to believe the good news. But here's the trick here. When did Jesus say this? This is at the beginning of his ministry. It wasn't until about two and a half to three years later that the cross happened. When we typically think of the gospel, we typically think of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, which says uh, that uh, the gospel is that Christ was, was crucified for our sins, was buried, and was raised on the third day. And that is the gospel, but I want to make... I want to make the statement that I don't think that's what Jesus was talking about here. That's the gospel of the cross. But I think Jesus was talking about a bigger gospel. Because as central and important as the cross is, and it is central, and it is critical, it is a means to a more full good news. And that is the gospel of of the kingdom. You see, your redemption was so that you could know God. That we could know God. Your being purchased at the cross was according to Galatians chapter 3, so that you might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. There is good news that's even larger than your forgiveness, which was achieved at Calvary. Now, I'm not in any way, and you, if you've ever heard me preach, 
you know that to, to me the gospel of the cross is central. And we have to have it because you can't get the gospel of the kingdom without the gospel of the cross. The cross is what redeems wicked, rebellious sinners by free grace through faith because God through Jesus redeemed them and paid the sin, paid the cost for our sins in full. That's the gospel of the cross. That the king enters into the world. He comes in, in in obscurity to live and to die and to bear the wrath of God and allow sinners by faith to become saints, foreigners to become citizens, rebels to become sons in God. But the gospel of the kingdom is that God through Jesus is establishing his eternal reign in the world to reverse the effects of sin, starting with the children of God that will extend to the entire created order, bringing order out of chaos. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Change your mind and believe how good this is. Why would anyone do this? Why would anyone risk it all, taking up their cross to follow Jesus? It's the same reason that people endure the pain of a shot in order to inoculate them from a disease. It's the same reason that people enter into marriage when singleness is predictable and safe. It is because it is good news. There is a hope that it is good, it is better, that Jesus has invited us into an eternal kingdom and in a relationship with him, that we re recognize that it is better, that what this world at this moment in time needs more than anything is more than social justice, church. It's more than economic recovery. It's more than the false promises of capitalism and socialism. What this world needs more than anything, and what your friends need more than anything, and what your family members need more than anything, is become part of the kingdom of God. Because that is good news. And are we willing to repent and believe the gospel again and again and again? I want to invite the worship team up for our closing song. We're going to sing This is Amazing Grace, but will you join me in prayer? Father, we come before you and we confess to you, Lord, that we are easily distracted. We confess, Father, that we are easily enticed by lesser things. That there is, there is weight and substance and beauty and eternality in what you have to offer. And we sit around and wonder whether this temporary thing might satisfy. And we, and we give in, Father, too often and we come on the other side of that rebellion and we say why did we come here again it never has satisfied it didn't satisfy this time and it won't satisfy in the future and so we thank you jesus for your grace that reminds us that we are accepted in the beloved because of the gospel of the cross and we thank you that through that acceptance we get to live out the joy in this life and then in the life to come.
So Lord, in the freedom of that gospel, let us be people who bring justice into this world. Let us be people that bring peace where there is anxiety. Let us be people who bring forgiveness where there is hatred. Let us be people, Father, who bring love. You're a good Father, and you have amazing grace towards us.